as we go through these four verses, what Christ is giving us is not just, just a list of, of things to say. What I want us to see is that he's revealing something of his very heart. We are peering in this moment into his very own prayer life to see the heart that he longs to see reflected in our prayer life. You know, if you're taking notes this morning, I've entitled this message, Teach Us to Pray, Part 1. And we're really going to be looking at, in this first uh, message in Part 1 on Teach Us to Pray, about what to pray, as the Lord unpacks his prayer for us. Next week, we're going to be looking less at what to pray, more at how to pray, as the Lord Jesus explains something of the qualities of our prayer that he wants. We're going to see two different points this morning, as is my habit. I think I've formed a habit in this. We're going to spend most of our time just on this first point, because I think it's the key. I think it's really everything flows on from point number one, which we're going to be spending some time on. But one heart for us this morning, church, one heart that I want us to take away as we look at this topic of prayer, and that is that our deepest wishes and desires would be shaped by the Lord Jesus as he teaches us how to pray. That's what I want. Our, not just a list to memorize, but that our heart's desires would be shaped by the Lord Jesus as he teaches us what to pray. So I'm going to dive right into our passage. Point number one, prayer is first vertical. You know, just by way of context, if you're new to Luke's gospel, uh, it's a biography of Jesus' life written by one of his earliest followers, the great physician, Dr. Luke. And Jesus had earlier in chapter 9 determined to go to Jerusalem where he was going to achieve the victory of the cross, where he was going to die and he was going to rise. But it's important for us to note this morning, just the Gospels are more than just accounts of Jesus' life. The Gospels were written as discipleship manuals. Discipleship manuals to help us to know as disciples how to follow Jesus. And Jesus had been, in fact, in Bethany in the home of Mary and Martha, as we saw last week, where he was teaching them that being with him is the greatest task of the disciple. And now Jesus, through Dr. Luke, is going to be teaching them to pray as a community. We see that throughout our passage this morning in the repeated uses of the plural. Give us. Forgive us. For we together. So let's dive back into our passage and read with me from verse 1. It says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. The first thing we observe from our passage is that Jesus was himself a man of prayer. Jesus was constant in prayer. You know, as the divine son of God, you might be tempted to think that prayer for Jesus would be unnecessary. And yet the Bible teaches that God is, at his core, a loving relationship. Jesus, therefore, is in constant conversation with his father. You know, in fact, it is easy to miss that in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been constant in prayer all throughout it. After his baptism, before the spirit descends upon Jesus, we find him praying. Luke writes that Jesus in the midst of fame and crowds was constantly withdrawing to the wilderness to pray. Before he called his disciples, he prayed all night in chapter six of Luke's gospel. 
After feeding the 5,000 before Peter confesses him as the Christ, where was Christ? He was praying alone. And before the transfiguration in chapter 9, verse 28, he was praying with Peter, James, and John. You see, Jesus is not just someone with loads of ideas about prayer, but he was a man deeply committed to praying. And therefore, fundamental to being a follower of Jesus is to learn how to pray. Let's keep reading with me in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. See, this is the second time Jesus has been compared to John the Baptist. We see it earlier in chapter 5, where the Pharisees asked why Jesus doesn't instruct his disciples to fast like John did. You see, it was common in Jesus' day for rabbis to give their disciples a, a method of praying, a distinctive method that represented that rabbi. And the disciples are asking, Lord, could you instruct us in prayer like John did for his disciples? You see, Jesus isn't teaching the disciples how to pray in theory. Again, he is teaching them now as a man deeply devoted to prayer himself. He is inviting them in, in this moment, into his very prayer life. And so Jesus begins in verse 2 of chapter 11. Luke writes, And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father. You'll notice that in Matthew's gospel, Jesus' prayer is, is quite a bit longer. And, and he goes on to say, our Father in heaven. And that's not surprising because, because Jesus is a wonderful teacher. And we all know that wonderful teachers don't just teach every lesson the exact same way. They teach multiple lessons and multiple times on the topic. And we can assume that Jesus too teaches multiple occasions to his disciples in how to pray. And we have two different instances of them recorded in the Gospels. And this topic especially so because it was so close to the Lord Jesus' heart. You know, the differences between Matthew and Luke, they're a reminder that what Jesus is teaching us here is not a rigid list to recite, but a pattern that should inform our prayers. As Matthew says, our Father, here the focus for Luke is simply Father. And that's the first aspect of the vertical component of our prayers, is that we pray first to God, our Father, upwards to Him. And that's what I mean by vertical. You know, if you've been following Jesus for a long time, and that's many of us in this room, some words are so familiar that you completely lose the sense of wonder and awe that they should fill us with. You know, the meaning of some words are so often repeated, they become invisible to us. They get stripped completely of their meaning, and Father is one of them. You see, the concept of God as Father is barely mentioned at all in the Old Testament. And it's never in the sense to encourage people to pray to God as Father. There are two passages in the Bible where God is described as our Father, but it's in the sense of Him being the, the maker of the nation of Israel as a whole. And one of those passages is in Malachi 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 10, where uh, the Lord says through the prophet Malachi, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? See, God here is described 
as a father, not in the sense of a personal relationship with God, but in the sense of the maker of the whole nation of Israel. God's people had previously been familiar with the idea of God as being the father of the nation, but what Jesus is saying here is incredibly different to this. Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father. The word Father here that Jesus chooses to use is actually an extremely personal word. It's widely recognized that the Greek word here, pater, where we get the word paternal from, is a translation of the Aramaic word, Abba. Abba, a term of endearment used by children and adults. Not daddy, because that is just used by children, but perhaps better than father, simply dad. What Jesus is instructing his disciples here to do is absolutely revolutionary. He instructs his followers to address God with the most intimate of titles, dad. The question that that comes to mind for me immediately as you read this is, how is this possible? How is it possible that we could address God as dad? You see, the Bible teaches that God is completely separated from us. He is transcendent. He is above us. You know, there's this popular idea that's often ridiculed in pop culture that, that God is kind of like the grandfather who lives in the sky. And for this reason, the first man to ever orbit the earth, Yuri Gagarin, supposedly said, I looked and I looked and I looked and I didn't see God. And yet the Bible, the God of the Bible is completely different from the man in the sky. If life were a novel, novel, God is the famous author who wrote it. God is the one who stands outside of all history and all time. And so the question becomes, how can we address him as father? How can we address him as dad? And the simple answer is because Jesus can. In 9.35, Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. The voice from the heaven proclaims, this is my son. My chosen one, listen to him. You see, Jesus is the one and only son of God. And the Bible teaches that God is a loving relationship. His essence is love. God is a father who loves his son through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is part of this one and only true God. He is the one and only son of the living God. And the Bible teaches that because God is a father who loves his son through the Spirit, That the world has turned on this loving father that he created long ago. It has become corrupted because the world rejected God as its maker. You see, God made humanity with a clear purpose. He made us in his very image to know him and love him. And every person is precious to God because they're uniquely made with his imprint and his purpose for life connected to the God who is an of himself love. And humanity in turning on him has chosen a suicide mission to live in defiance of the one for whom we were made. And God who is love must treat every creature justly because he is loving. And that is to bring upon us judgment. And yet out of his love, he sent his son who permanently became fully man to rescue us. And as a result, we see Jesus, God the son, praying after the 72 return. He says in chapter 10, verse 21, he says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, 
Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son, who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You see, Jesus is able to pray to the author of life as Father in a personal way because he himself is the divine Son. Okay, that all makes sense that Jesus can pray to God as Father if he's the eternal Son of God, one person of the Trinity itself, but how can we pray to God as Father? And the answer is because of Christ's resurrection from the dead. You know, so Jesus came to redo life for us. He came to live the life we were designed to live. He went to the cross in our place. We deserved God's judgment. He decided to substitute himself for us. In 951, he set his face towards Jerusalem. It meant he was determined to die. He paid in full upon the cross for our sins and failings. He was buried. He rose again in glory on the third day and appeared to more than 500 people. And what he offers to us is is more than forgiveness. No, that would leave us neutral. The good news of the gospel is that because Jesus is alive, he offers all who trust in him adoption into his very own family. And so John writes in John 1, 12, but to all who received in him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's the scandal of the gospel. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can be spiritually reconnected to the author of life. Through trust in Jesus, we can be spiritually transformed. We can be changed from the inside out to be more like Jesus and forever joined to him through his spirit. Romans chapter 8 verse 15, Paul writes, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so we can pray just like Jesus, with the same assurance that we'll be heard by God, not because we're perfect like him, but because he has joined us to God. But here's the problem. The idea of God being a father for many of us here in Warunga in 2021 presents a massive problem. An Australian psychologist Steve Bidoff says that out of 100 Australian men, 30% are estranged from their father. That means they barely speak. 30% of Australian men would describe their relationship to their father as prickly. It means they stick to safe topics, or dad is always right, or they have a cactus relationship. 30% of Australian men would say their relationship with their fathers is dutiful. It's more out of a sense of obligation. And only 10% of Australian men would say they're close to their fathers. One in 10. 90% of Aussie men would report having a distant or dysfunctional relationship with their dad. And therefore, it's hard not to take those personal experiences of our fathers and for them to affect our perception of God as Father. 
And as a result, the thought of praying to God as Father becomes kind of distasteful. We mustn't allow our bad experiences of fathers to affect our perception of God as Father. He is the best of fathers. He is the greatest of fathers in this world. The greatest of fathers in this world are in fact just a a dim reflection of Him as Father. Here's a question I want us to consider this morning as a church. Is that how we've been approaching prayer? As spending time with your dad, maybe even the dad you never had. Now, I'm, I'm so new to the journey of parenting, and yet I felt God teaching me so much. Uh, one of the sweetest things for me has been when Elijah, my son, my oldest son, who's just over two, he, he moves things to be close to me. Uh, I'm working on the couch with my laptop. He, he brings out his toy laptop, and he just wants to sit there typing away and, and talking to me about the things he loves. Like, at the moment, alphabet is basically what he loves, ABC. <laughs> Daddies say ABCs? Okay. You know, I was bathing him uh, the other day, <clears throat> and I said, Elijah, you probably won't realize how much I love you till you have kids of your own. And I just kind of started tearing up because I realized my, my own dad must feel the same exact same way about me, and I hadn't spoken to him in weeks and weeks and weeks. And so I just... I just right there and there, I just got out my phone and I called up my dad. That Jesus calls us friends to pray Father completely changes what prayer is. It's the most privileged of conversations with the Father who loves us, is for us, and is so great that even the greatest Father in the world's love pales in comparison to His. Shall do you mind if I just grab it? I've been on holidays for too long. I'm losing my voice here. That's great. Thanks so much. Now, I know that at this point, many of you are getting worried and checking your watches because so far into the sermon, we've only covered one word of Jesus' prayer. But don't stress! It's the key to all the rest. <clears throat> Second aspect of the vertical relationship that we have with God, we don't just pray Father when we pray to God, but we we pray for God's name to be honored. Verse 2, he says, Father, hallowed be your name. Can I be honest with you guys? Like for many years, I had no idea what the word hallowed means uh, at all. I know it's a Harry Potter movie title, (laughs) Deathly Hallows. Um, But beyond that, I, I really had no clue. Hallowed actually means to make or treat as holy. To, to, hallowed be your name is a prayer that God's name would be held in honor, that would be revered as something precious and treated as something precious. By God's name, it's a Hebrew way of saying God's essence, God's very being. And so when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're actually asking that in every place, God would be treated with due honor and respect. And this is where the truth about God as our Father comes into play. The truth is that when you love someone, you're deep, it's deeply grieving to see their name held in dishonor, especially when they're wrongly slandered and treated ill by other people. 
You see, if my dad was wrongly having his character attacked, if he was wrongly being dishonored, I would care deeply, and I'd want to see that change. I'd want to see his reputation restored because I love him. How much more for the holy God of all? To pray, hallowed be your name, is to pray for the progress of the work of the gospel everywhere, in our homes, communities, nations, around the world. John Stott puts it this way so well. He says, we should be jealous for the honor of his name, troubled when it remains unknown, hurt when it is ignored, indignant when it is blasphemed, and all the time anxious and determined that it shall be given the honor and glory which are due to it. Here's my question for us this morning, church. Are your prayers filled with a deep desire to see the Lord Jesus honored? Now, post-Christian culture feels perfectly comfortable mocking Christian faith. We're bigots, we're backwards, we're ignorant cave dwellers. Jesus Christ is most often heard as a swear word. But it's so easy to become desensitized to it. Our hearts should be deeply grieved when God is slandered and held in disrepute. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we should speak every time someone curses, but it should motivate us to pray. The greatest motivation for mission should not primarily be our heart for the lost, although we should care deeply about them. Nor should it be simply obedience to the Great Commission, though uh, though obedience to the Great Commission matters. It should be zeal for the honor of the name of our Lord God. A question I've been thinking about the last couple of weeks is, when was the last time I prayed for the Lord's name to be held in honor? Can I really be honest? Often my prayers tend more towards lists. Would the Lord help us to cry out for his name to be revered in every place? Thirdly, we we don't just pray to our Father, we don't just pray for his name to be honored, but we pray for God's rule to come. Jesus goes on, he says, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. See, God's kingdom is not a physical place like the United Kingdom or the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. The kingdom of God is Jesus' way about speaking about anywhere God is ruling and reigning. And in one sense, God is ruling everywhere. Yet because he is mercifully holding off from bringing his final judgment, there are many, many places where he continues to allow people to live in defiance of him. And this includes our very own hearts, often divided and seeking our own comfort and glory. And so Jesus expands in in his teaching recorded in Matthew's gospel. He says, your kingdom come your will be done. You see, to pray your kingdom come is to daily reorient our our hearts and our minds to be in submission to God. It's to daily come to him in prayer and say, Lord, I've started this day wanting my kingdom and and will be done. But today is not about me. It's about your plans. It's about your desires. Your will be done. It's a daily offering of self to the Lord. It's the any prayers. Lord, I'm your servant. Use me in any way you see fit. Take me any place you desire. Use anything I own as you please. It's then a prayer for our homes and, and our, 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 our families to reflect his kingdom, our, our church community, our city, our nation, our world. Your kingdom come, your will be done. To pray your kingdom come is also to pray and plead with the Lord to hasten his return to earth where his kingdom will finally be established on every square inch of this earth. You know, Christians are often accused of having their heads in the clouds. Uh, the famous 
a physician and American writer, Oliver Wendell Holmes, is, is famous for saying, Christians are so heavenly minded, they are of no earthly good. The thought is that Christians only care about the spiritual. And yet the truth is, Christian, Christianity is so incredibly down to earth. See, the earth was made very good by God. And though we have corrupted it, God will not abandon what he has made. No, he will bring heaven to earth where he will reign forever. Your kingdom come is a prayer that invites God to end all injustice and suffering. It's to invite him to come and wipe away every tear from every eye. Jesus is saying, when you pray, ask him to do it. Now, what I find so convicting about Jesus' teaching on prayer so far is that it's so incredibly God-focused. You know, while my prayers are so often focused more on my own concerns, Jesus teaches us that prayer begins with the vertical. It begins with God himself, knowing he's a father who deeply loves us, that we ought to deeply desire for his name to be honored, and that we ought ought to long for his reign here on earth amongst all peoples. But not just vertical, part two. Prayer is also second, horizontal. See, just as the kingdom of God will not ultimately be Christians flying around in the clouds, but God bringing his rule and reign down to earth, God is also concerned with the details of our lives. And so Jesus gives the disciples three kinds of requests to pray, and I've made them all start with P, because apparently that's what you should do when you're writing a sermon. Uh, All right, so... Here are the three things that Jesus gives to us. First of all, we pray for provision. Jesus says, give us each day our daily bread. See, Jesus instructs his disciples to ask for their daily food, what they need for food each and every day. Notice what the request is for. Daily bread, provision for each and every day. See, this is not a request for abundance. It's a request simply for what is necessary, the things we need. It's so easy in our culture of abundance to forget that everything we have every day is actually a provision from our Father in heaven. And it's so easy to forget that he provides daily for us far more than we actually need. Notice also it says, give us, not give me. It's not actually a self-focused prayer. This is a community prayer. This is asking for God's provision for the entire Jesus community. You know, in many ways, this prayer for our daily bread is meant to point us to God's provision for his people in the wilderness with manna. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, uh, Moses writes, he says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, God could have provided for Israel in the wilderness in such a way that they never had to worry about having enough. They had, they could have been given huge storehouses laden with food. But he chose instead to give them just enough for each and every day to teach them dependence on his very word. You know, church, I've been thinking the last few weeks and I've been wondering whether perhaps my desire to own a home here in Sydney is in part driven by a distrust of this very provision of God. You know, there are lots of good reasons to own a home here in Sydney. I mean, it's a good investment. Uh, it's good for, you know, being nice and comfortable. It's, it can be a good status symbol. But a big reason why people want to buy a home, I think, is security. 
it feels more stable. It feels more permanent. And yet there's an opportunity here, I believe, in having less and even in some strange way in renting. Kind of a daily, weekly reminder of what is true of us all. And that is that we depend on the daily provision of the Lord. God wants us as a community to have a day-by-day trust in his provision. He wants us to turn to him day-by-day for our daily bread. But secondly, not just provision, second P, is we also pray for pardon. Jesus says, as he teaches his disciples, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. You know, this word indebted is perhaps better translated as sin because it's kind of referring to a Jewish expression, a Jewish way of thinking, uh, or referring to a moral debt, which in other words is actually Jesus is just talking about sin. You know, some people find this verse really troubling because it, it seems to imply that extending forgiveness is necessary to receive it. It seems to imply that, that forgiveness is a condition of receiving the salvation of our Lord. But for, of course, Forgiveness comes through grace alone, by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That is the clear teaching of Jesus and the scriptures. But it's also true that those who are forgiven will also forgive. Forgiving others is a sign of a life that has been transformed by the forgiveness of God in Christ. It's a fruit of salvation. It's a fruit of life transformed by the gospel and not a root. See, Jesus is teaching his disciples to say, God, forgive us our sins Because we are genuine disciples who have been radically transformed by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we forgive all who sin against us. Now notice, those who have been transformed by the gospel forgive not some, but everyone. Isn't that radical? Jesus models a radical form of forgiveness that has no restrictions whatsoever. See, Jesus wants his disciples to see that fundamental to our Christian calling is a life of constant repentance. Martin Luther, in the very first of those 95 theses, you might remember them, you know, getting nailed onto the All Saints Church in Wittenberg in 1517. The very first one of his 95 theses says this. It says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. The reality of indwelling sin remaining in our hearts means that our desires are not yet fully aligned with our Lord and therefore our entire life is going to be one of repentance as we constantly sin and need to repent is what Martin Luther meant by our life being one of repentance. See, the Lord Jesus wants us to see that one of the primary places we can grow is through prayer. As we examine the word of the Lord and the Holy Spirit applies, us, applies it to our hearts, we, we are convicted of our sins and we confess to him our failings. You see, if you're not a praying person, you won't be a growing person because you'll struggle to live the life of repentance God is calling you to without regular repentance through prayer. And so that's the second P, not just provision, not just pardon, but the third P, also protection. Jesus says, and lead us not into temptation. You know, what I love so much about Jesus' final prayer request is that it's so wonderfully humble. You know, to lead into temptation does not mean God entices people to sin. 
Uh, in James 1.13, it says, no one is tempted to sin by God, but it comes from our own sinful desires. So Jesus is not talking about God tempting us to sin. Jesus is talking about the way in which God does allow our faith to be tested. And that is exactly what Jesus is referring to here. Jesus is inviting a disciple who loves pleasing God to ask their father for protection. You know, though 1 Corinthians 10 says that every time someone is tempted, God will always provide a way out for us. There is this healthy distrust of self in this prayer request. Jesus is saying, don't trust yourself. Ask God to help protect you from every temptation. You see, the truth is that sin is often extremely enticing. It looks so good. It seems so good. And yet it never delivers as promised. And so to pray this prayer is to say, Lord, I'm weak. I don't trust myself to face even the slightest temptation in this area. Would you protect me and keep me safe? See, what I love so much about this final request for protection is that it leads us back full circle. Because we have a Father in heaven who wants us to grow in faithfulness, like the Lord, He wants to help us. You see, it's possible to survey this long list of of six items and to feel somewhat heavily burdened by them. All these different things I need to pray. My prayer is that that wouldn't be the case by this list or by this message. See, the Lord Jesus is giving us access into his very heart. These are the things he loves to ask his Father and wants us to love as well. Namely, that he would be glorified, that his kingdom would come, that he would provide for his people, that he would forgive them and protect them. And the truth is, if you're trusting in Christ, you're joined to him, and he's begun renovating your heart, and he will never fail to complete what he has begun. Well, just by way of closing, you know, starting out my journey as a dad has been one of the greatest privileges the Lord has given me in my life so far, being entrusted with my two little boys in Elijah and Isaac. And there's nothing more heartwarming to me as a dad when Elijah wants to sit with me and do whatever I'm doing. I mentioned one before, working on his laptop. He also likes to sing along with me. Uh, if I'm reading a book, he want, also wants to read a book. If I'm watching TV, he also wants to watch tea with, TV with me. A recent one is if I'm sitting on the toilet, he also wants to come in and uh, let himself in and sit on the potty as well. <laughs> See, the beautiful truth is that my relationship with Elijah is but a broken and dim reflection of what we have with our Father. Would that make prayer not a duty, but an absolute delight, church? Would our deepest wishes and desires be shaped by the Lord Jesus as he teaches us to pray? Would you pray with me? Well, Father, as we close in prayer, first of all, I just want to thank you for helping my voice survive through this sermon uh, this morning. Lord God, you are so kind. And I want to thank you that we can pray, Dad. We can come before your throne as a, as a father. For many of us, the loving father we never had. And Lord God, for, for many of us, I know I, I speak on our behalf when I say we're, we're mindful of the truth that so often we have neglected to come to you and, and speak our heart with you, Lord God. But I just pray, by your Holy Spirit, would you not condemn us, Lord? Would you remind us afresh of the grace we have in the Lord Jesus and the beautiful opportunity we have to come and see your feet and speak with you? 
share our heart, to, to ask you to do the things you love, to see your name glorified in our families and communities and neighborhoods, Lord God. To, to ask and pray that your kingdom would come in our own personal lives and in the lives of those around us, Lord. To, to provide for our needs each and every day, to forgive us our sins and mold and shape us to be more like Jesus and to protect us, Lord, in this journey until either you return or you call us home. So, Lord, would you help us to be a people on our knees and would the fruit of it be all the more honor, all the more glory to the one we love, our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Father, hallowed be your name. Church, please stand as we, as we are amazed at his beauty.